Isn't he wonderful? God is good all the time. It's good to worship with you this morning. It's a big weekend, uh, this, uh, this holiday. You know what it used to be called? Anybody know? Before Memorial Day? Decoration Day. That's right. I found that out as a 19-year-old pastor when they canceled church on this weekend so that we could go down to the Powers Chapel Cemetery and decorate the graves. And uh, today's the day when we honor the ones who died in the service, not the 845 or 1115 service, but you know what I mean. And we were um, sitting last evening at supper after one of our sons graduated from high school yesterday, and uh, both grandparents, both grandfathers were there, and, uh, and uh, one grandmother, and we were, we were just sitting there, and as they were talking later in the day, I realized that uh, my, my sons have two grandfathers who both served in the military, one uh, in the Seabees in the Navy uh, during um, the uh, Korean conflict, and then uh, my father in Southeast Asia in the Air Force, and then career military, 28 years. And so they have some of that heritage. My father in particular has an interest in Decoration Day. There's a little cemetery uh, by a creek in Missouri called uh, the Shiloh Cemetery, and there uh, some of our ancestors are buried. And yesterday he was lamenting. He said, there's nobody left in that area to take care of that cemetery, and I just don't know what's going to happen. And I sense when my dad talks about that, that it's bigger than just caring for the graves of his ancestors. I think he wonders, who will come and visit my grave someday, who will make sure that that is taken care of? And for many, that is a, a real concern. This um, holiday reminds us that everybody has the right to die and be remembered with dignity. Uh, some cultures worship their ancestors. Other cultures get so self-absorbed that they forget about their ancestors. It's as though they sort of started the world when they were born. But uh, What is a Christian response? We remember that everyone deserves to be honored, uh, to be honored with dignity. I read about a young minister who was asked by um, a funeral director in the little town that he was serving to come and preach a a funeral for a homeless person who had been traveling through the area and who had passed away. And and, uh, it was his first funeral, and so he wanted to do it right. I remember that day in my own life, the first funeral I ever preached was the first funeral I ever attended. So I studied hard. I wanted to do it right. And uh, this young man was headed out to the cemetery and it's way back in the country in a backwoods area. And wouldn't you know it, he got lost and he became a a typical man. Instead of stopping and asking for directions, he just kept going. I think uh, humans are the only mammal that goes goes faster when we get lost. And uh, he finally arrived an hour late and he sees the backhoe there and the, the workers are there. And uh, he feels really bad about it, and he gets out. The hearse has already left, and he says, you know, I'm sorry I'm late, and, uh, but I think we ought to do this. Uh, this person has no family, but we ought to honor his memory. And so he looks, and he sees that the lid has already been placed over the vault, and, and he, he gathers them. And the, the, the workers are eating their lunch, but they just come over with their sack lunches in hands, and, and uh, he, he begins to preach. And um, he starts in Genesis and goes all the way through Revelation. I mean, he preaches a long sermon, and he honors, and he feels like when he's done, he's done his part, and he's honored that person's life, and he's going back to his car. He thanks them for being there, and he takes off his jacket, and he overhears one of the guys saying, you know, I've been in this business for 20 years, and I've never seen anything like that. I mean, I've been putting in septic tanks all these years, and I've never heard anybody do that. 
Well, the young preacher did his best, and we ought to do our best to honor our loved ones who've gone before. How do we do that? We look at the story of Abraham and Sarah. We're coming to the end of their generation. A new generation is being formed, and there are deaths and marriages in their family, in your family as well. And notice um, in the scriptures, would you stand with me as we read God's word and think about our holy heritage. I want to just cover a few passages of scripture in Genesis 23, 25, and 26, a few verses in each. So stay with me as I read Genesis 23, verse 17. Sarah has passed away. And Isaac is mourning and Abraham is negotiating a place to bury her. 23 verse 17. So Ephron's field in Machpelah near Mamre, both the field and the cave in it and all the trees within the borders of the field was deeded to Abraham as his property in the presence of all the Hittites who had come to the gate of the city. And afterward Abraham buried his wife Sarah in the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre, which is at Hebron in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave in it were deeded to Abraham by the Hittites as a burial site. Then in chapter 25, verse 5, Abraham is remarried, by the way, in his, in his older age. He has six more sons. He has sent them away. But listen to what it says in verse 5 of 25. Abraham left everything he owned to Isaac. But while he was still living, he gave gifts to the sons of his concubines and sent them away from his son Isaac to the land of the east. Altogether, Abraham lived 175 years. Then Abraham breathed his last and died at a good old age, an old man and full of years. He was gathered to his people. His sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah near Mamre in the field of Ephron, son of Zohar the Hittite, the field Abraham had bought from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with his wife Sarah. And after Abraham's death, God blessed his son Isaac, who then lived near Beer Lahai Roy. And then in chapter 26, we pick up the story in verse 1. And it says, Now there was a famine in the land, besides the earlier famine of Abraham's time. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, in Gerar. And the Lord appeared to Isaac and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land where I tell you to live. Stay in this land for a while and I'll be with you and will bless you for to you and your descendants I will give all these lands and will confirm the oath I swore to your father Abraham. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. I will give them all these lands and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed because Abraham obeyed me and kept my requirements, my commands, my decrees and my laws. So Isaac stayed in Gerar. And when the men of that place asked him about his wife, he said, she's my sister. Because he was afraid to say, she's my wife. He thought the men of this place might kill me on account of Rebekah because she is beautiful. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the beauty of this day, for the beauty of your word, for the beauty of the earth that you have created. And all of it reminds us of the greatness of your glory Help us, I pray, Father, in the story of Abraham and Sarah and the generational blessing that took place. Help us to hear the gospel today, we pray. We ask it in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. You have heard, I know, of pre-planning your funerals. It does a, a great service to your loved ones to take care of that before they have to uh, deal with that in their time of grief. Abraham and Sarah may have been the very first ones. Abraham wants to make sure there's a place for his wife to be buried. Interestingly, he has heard the promise of God that he's going to receive all the land in that area. But when his wife dies, now he is 147 years old. And, and in this point of his life, he doesn't own a place to bury his wife. So he negotiates. It's an interesting negotiation that he has with the people of that area. And he, he finds a cave and, and there he wants to bury his wife. And he purchases the cave and then... He realizes his son is still grieving and he's got to do something for Isaac and he thinks, maybe I'll get him a wife. And so he sends his servant back to find a wife. Remember that story in chapter 24. And one of the ways the servant convinces Rebecca and her family that Isaac would be a good person for her to marry is he says in chapter 24, verse 34, the Lord has really blessed Abraham and Abraham is going to give everything he has to his son Isaac. That's where we picked it up in 25, isn't it? It all belonged to him. Though Abraham had at least seven other sons and myriad grandchildren by this point, the truth is Isaac is the center of his affection and his devotion and his attention. He is partial, we may say, to Isaac. And Isaac must feel that sense of being chosen and loved and esteemed by his family, the only child of his mother and his father's great devotion. He was the apple of his father's eye and he watches his father and then that day comes when his father passes away and he finds his brother Ishmael and they together go back to that cave where Sarah has been buried and they bury Abraham and God comes and blesses Isaac and says, everything I promised your dad I promise you, all I want is for you to trust in me. I love the story of Abraham and Sarah. Abraham, a man of faith. Sarah, certainly a person of deep faith. Twice in the New Testament, she is mentioned as one whom we should emulate. One who had great devotion to her husband, great reverence and submission to the Lord. We love the story of this family. But this family was not a perfect family. Is your family perfect? I think sometimes when we go to the cemetery and we remember those whom we love, those who have gone before, and what have they really left to us? Some would say, well, I remember the inheritance I received from my parents or my uncle or my aunt. I received this marvelous inheritance. But I want to ask this morning, is is that all? One thing we know When we go to the cemetery and we take a a walkabout in the cemetery, we realize there are no perfect people buried there. Not one. I mean, we may idealize them. Think about Isaac growing up with Abraham as his father, knowing he's this great pillar of faith, and yet he saw his father at his best, and he saw his father at his worst, and knowing that, He had to choose what inheritance he would receive from his father. He could could take the best, he could take the worst, and decide what he would do with it. And so, by the way, can we. What is the best that your family has left to you? 
Remember that today. Celebrate that. What is the worst that your family has left to you? And what will you do with that? We can reject the worst of our heritage. We don't have to take the generational curse. Maybe you come from a long line of people who had a particular problem and you've come to believe that's just the way our family is. But I came this morning to say, not so. That you can choose by the grace of God to live a different way. Notice just a couple of generational curses that Isaac had to deal with in his family. They had a problem, it turns out, with partiality. We see it just beginning as you read this part that I read to you about Abraham sending some of his sons away. It may feel good to be the chosen child, but some of you could testify this morning and say it doesn't feel very good to not be the chosen child. My dad and I were talking recently, I, I shared with some of you, and, and I asked him about his grandfather. And he said, you know, my grandfather played favorites. And I said, really? Were you a favorite? He said, no. I said, how did that feel? Not very good, he said. Oh, if you're the favorite, it feels great. Isaac might have felt great about being the chosen one from time to time when our boys were growing up. This probably never happened in your household, but, but they would ask when we said to them, now this is what you have to do and this is your discipline and this is, they would say, but what, what, what about him? Why do you treat, why? But he got to, and, and I, we always said, yeah, and that's because we like him better. That's why. Your worst fears are true. We've always, we said it to both of them periodically. Yes, we like him better. And just to sort of balance that out, and we joked about it but in some families that's not a joke is it like in Isaac's family and so when his sons are born it turns out he has twins he prays for his wife because she can't bear children and then she bears two sons and and one of them is just the way he thinks a son should be and he loves Esau it says in the Bible chapter in chapter 25 it says he loved he loved Esau, and Rebekah loved Jacob. And there is conflict in the family over the partiality. A lot of the sibling rivalry, a lot of the anger, a lot of the intensity between adult siblings traces back to a sense, whether real or not, that there was partiality and favoritism. Watch it go into the next generation when Jacob will choose, remember, Joseph and Benjamin. And then notice when Jacob blesses Joseph's sons, his grandsons, he pulls the switcheroo. Remember that? He's supposed to put his right hand on the head of the elder one because he's supposed to be the one who receives the right hand of blessing. But instead he switches his hands and puts his left hand on the elder. And Joseph says, don't do that. It's as if he's saying, stop stop the favoritism. At least in this generation, stop this. And and Jacob says, no, this is the way it has to be. And maybe if you were the one who was not chosen, you were the second or third or the least like your parents, then it may be that you identify one in your family who's a lot like you. The trouble with that is, where does it end? Uh, reading in family systems theory, they, they have uh, studied families and decided that we don't raise our kids the way our parents raised us. Isn't that interesting? We raise our kids the way we saw our parents raise our siblings. Now watch that happen in a family where one is chosen and one is not chosen. And watch how a parent or a grandparent can to this day, thinking he is blessing one, curse the other. That's a problem. 
It's a problem in families. And what do we do about it? Well, we, we choose to love inclusively. We choose to embrace our kids however they are wired. Can you imagine looking at your family that your kids could be so utterly different from each other? It's just astonishing to us that from the same gene pool, kids so incredibly different could come. Raised in the same family, loved by the same parents, and, and so incredibly different. I had a friend in Austin. He was our chairman of deacons, chairman of personnel. Great, great servant of God. He loved to fish. He was crazy about fishing. We went fishing one day, got in one of those storms. It was like the Sea of Galilee. I was hoping Jesus would come walking across the water and save us because I was pretty sure we weren't going to make it to the shore without Jesus. But somehow we did. We drifted in and we made it back. And, and he, you know, he, his wife and he had a, a son and then they adopted a daughter and they just had this beautiful family. And he always dreamed his son would go fishing with him. But it turned out as his son grew up, there was one thing he did not like to do. You guessed it. He did not like to fish. I asked him one time, I said, what does your son like to do? He said, skateboards. I said, what are you going to do about that? He said, I'm going to learn about skateboards. I'm going to learn everything about that culture I can because that's the world he lives in. Turns out his daughter loved to fish and uh, went fishing with him all the time. But the son never was. And the, you know what I loved about Mike Wright, my friend Mike Wright, is he never tried to squeeze that son into that mold, but he met him where he was. It was a lesson to me as we have raised our kids, as we're continuing to raise them, that we needed to meet them where they were. It turns out, you know, I can't even write my name legibly, and it turns out I have a son who's an artist. His grandfather over here is an artist. One of his uncles is an artist. It's probably not a big surprise that he's an artist, but that was not the world that I lived in. But I wanted to enter into that world. And here's the important thing, that we love inclusively. The second challenge in that family, not only partiality, but they had, a, they had trouble with lying. Go figure that. It, it goes back to Genesis chapter 12 and, and tr- chapter 20 where uh, Abraham goes down into Egypt and he goes down into Philistia and both occasions he's worried that they're going to kill him over Sarah. Now this is interesting because remember one of God's promises to him was, I am your shield. But he didn't believe that. Not as it came to his relationship with his wife. Now, if you read those stories closely, what you find out in chapter 12 and chapter 21 is that Abraham got really rich by lying about his wife. It's an amazing story. And he asks her to lie. And little Isaac, um, little Isaac will hear about those stories. And there comes a day when he starts to move down to Philistia. You see it there in chapter 26. And he's probably on his way down to Egypt, just as his father had done. But, but God stops him and says, don't go to Egypt. But in that moment, when he enters into that land of Abimelech, the king, he says to his wife, tell him you're my sister. He does the same thing his father did. Now watch this sort of track down through the generations. Jacob was a world-class liar. I mean, he, he deceived and grasped and lied and lied to his own father, pretending to be his brother. Remember that story? And then remember Jacob's sons who lied to him about saying that Joseph had been killed when they had sold Joseph into slavery because of the whole partiality thing. And so one sin leads to another and it continues. And the thing about lies is they never live alone, do they? They always sort of come in herds because we've got to protect the last lie. And it's just a, an abyss that this family falls into. Always lying, never telling the truth. 
Um, Poe Bronson wrote an article about this uh, in the New Yorker magazine some years ago about where children learn to lie. What do you think? They're just born that way? They just come out of the womb ready to lie? Where do they learn to lie? Why do they lie? And his ultimate conclusion was they are copying their parents. I wonder, we who are dealing with truth with our kids, is truth an issue in our lives? Do we play fast with the facts when our lips are moving? Are we telling the truth? We lie in, in, in numerous ways. Uh, I read an article this week about, about the seven different stages in lying. You can pick it up on Christianity Today. But what it says to us is once you start, it's hard to stop. And how do we break that? Well, we ruthlessly, relentlessly pursue truth in our own lives. We confess it when we know we have misled or deceived because our families are watching and we need to be careful what we are showing them. They had a generational curse of lying. Maybe you come like I come. You, if, if it's not in your immediate uh, ancestry, just go back to Adam and Eve. You'll find it. We come from a long line of liars. And how do we live the truth? Well, the Apostle Paul says, speak the truth in love. The most loving thing we can do is speak the truth and live the truth and tell the truth in the name of the one who said, I am the truth. Jesus is the truth. And he invites us to live lives of truth where we're not constantly deceiving and being deceived. There were things in Isaac's heritage that he had to decide. What am I going to do with this? With the partiality, with the, the lying, what will I do with those things? But the best part of his heritage was not Genesis uh, 24, verse 35, and Abraham left him all of his possessions. Not 25, verse 5, all that he had he left to him. The best heritage he received from his father Abraham was trust in the Lord. Genesis 15, verse 6, And Abraham believed God, and God credited it to him as righteousness. And Isaac learned, and God comes to him and says, I not only blessed your father, but I'm going to bless you. And not only was your father a blessing, but I'm going to make you a blessing. And there comes a day when we see in chapter 26, Isaac owns that for himself, and it says that he built an altar to the Lord and he called upon the name of the Lord. There in chapter 26, verse 25, he had seen his father trust in God and now he trusts in God as well. This, this is our hope. This is what you and I have to leave to our kids. Some of you may lament the fact that you, uh, by, the time you uh, by the time you're finished, will not have any material possession to leave or much to give to your children. My, uh, my mother doesn't have much money in this world. There won't be anything for her to give to me and to my children financially. But when I was uh, seven years old, she led me to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as my personal Savior and Lord. And that inheritance lives in me and my three brothers and our children and goes forward to another generation. What can we leave to our kids? And some of us this morning may say, my kids have nothing to worry about. I'm going to leave them so much money. They're going to be opulently wealthy. And my prayer is that works out. But the truth is, 
If that's all we leave to our kids, we've not really left them much, have we? What if we taught our kids to trust? What if they looked at our lives and saw the way we trusted the Lord? What if they saw us make mistakes and confess those mistakes and they saw us come to relationship with God that transformed our lives? Wouldn't that be a blessing to them if they could see us come back to the Lord again and again? Wouldn't they someday come to the altar and put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ This is our heritage. This is our legacy. If we give this to our kids, we've given them everything because Jesus plus nothing equals everything. But everything minus Jesus equals nothing. What will we leave to our kids? What is the heritage that we give to them? Here is the truth that I said to you. There are no perfect people in the cemeteries where your family and my family are buried. You know why? Because the perfect one walked out of the cemetery. Because the one who was crucified rose again on the third day, victorious from the tomb, walked out of that cemetery, took death and sin captive and overcame death, hell and the grave. And he is the one who said, I am the truth so that we don't have to live a lie. And he is the one who has chosen all people. He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to everlasting life. Have we put our trust in him? Because this is the legacy that we have to leave. Father Abraham, our children sing, Father Abraham had many sons, and I am one of them. And so are you, if you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your presence in this place, for the privilege of serving you. Help us, I pray, Lord, to receive the best of our heritage and to leave a legacy of trust in you to the generations that follow so that we who have been so richly blessed by you will be a blessing to all the generations to come. Through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen.